The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And thanks to everybody. Glad to have you here on this kind of cold and rainy evening. <clears throat> Aren't we glad for the rain? So tonight's talk is actually the fifth in a series that is focused on what traditionally in the Vipassana Theravadan tradition is called the five faculties. So let me just ask, first of all, just raise your hand if you've been to any of the other talks on the five faculties. There's been four so far. Oh, great. Well, thanks for hanging in until the very last one. I personally have to say the last one is the best. It's the capper. It's wisdom. <laughs> and in our tradition, in the scriptures, which go on for something like 27,000 pages or some such huge number, there is a lot of reference to wisdom. A lot of considering what is wisdom, how does one apply wisdom in a world that's filled with confusion and violence and tragedy and loss, pain and disaster. How does one apply wisdom in our lives? So we'll focus on that tonight. But I'd like to say just a little bit about the first four uh, for those who weren't here for the first of the four talks on the five faculties. So just to recap, the first one was the faculty of conviction, confidence, or faith with Chris Clifford. And that was on January 8th. And so the underlying idea on the first of the five faculties is that we begin with this feeling of will, of enthusiasm, of commitment, of dedication, something that carries us through. So the understanding is that in normal life, there's lots of distractions. And what starts our practice, what really begins our practice is when we get to the point when we say, you know, it's worth it to do this. I'm going to do it even though I have other things to do. I'd rather be listening to the radio or wouldn't it be fun to go for a walk or whatever. But at this point in my practice, I'm going to push through. I'm going to be dedicated and committed. I'm going to be in practice. So that's number one. The second one is the faculty of persistence or effort. And that was with Cheryl Hilton on January 15th. So once we've begun, what keeps us moving? It's the persistence, the effort. Some people say that effort is really the most important of the faculties because it is what overcomes Effort is what keeps us moving in a direction that has awareness and has uh, freedom at the conclusion of it. 
So just to close off on effort, that effort is important and helpful and beneficial and skillful if it moves us in the direction of more freedom and more happiness. So that is the overall criteria for looking at what is part of our practice or what should be part of our practice and what we could just leave behind. So the question is, does it result in more freedom and more happiness for us and hopefully others? So that is right effort. Third, on January 22nd, Jeff Hilton talked about mindfulness. Mindfulness comes up very often also in the tradition that we follow. Mindfulness is that capacity to hold all without judging, without distinguishing, without having prejudice, but just to hold it all. So mindfulness notices. Mindfulness does not hold off. It does not resist. Mindfulness is that quality or that faculty that really brings us our lives. Without mindfulness, we're automatons moving from stimulus to stimulus, from distraction to distraction. But with mindfulness, we have the capacity to notice and hold it all and then to choose. So the fourth of the faculties was last week, the 29th of January, with McBennett, concentration. And I'd just like to read a brief note about this event that's going to happen on Sunday, which is really an important event. This is with Richard Shankman. And Maureen introduced it and announced it. But let me just say a little bit more about it. First of all, Richard is a fantastic teacher and a wonderful person. He's been very helpful to Insight Meditation Center. And most recently, he has been the founder of Mindfulness in Schools, which is a program that happens in Oakland in the public schools. Mindfulness comes into the classroom and is helping teachers and students deal with the challenges they have. But this talks about Richard's new book, How Does Concentration Fit Into Insight Meditation? What are the samadhi stages? Samadhi is the Sanskrit word that refers to concentration. So what are the samadhi stages known as the jhanas? The jhanas are um, a little bit more esoteric, not talked about so much. States of consciousness, levels of awareness that allow us to have an expanded sense of ourselves, of life, and so forth. Are there two paths of meditation practice? One is tranquility and the other insight? Or one path that synthesizes the two into one practice? After examination of samadhi and jhana in the source texts, we will discuss these different views and consider how each can inform and enrich meditation practice. The day will include some meditation practice periods. So I intend to be there and I really recommend it to all of you.
understanding samadhi and having a feel for what this inner space is that we achieve through just sitting and just being present, I think is very important to practice. The wisdom tradition or the the long tradition of Theravadan uh, insight and teachings is very rich and very wonderful and we can talk about it and we can mull it over in our minds and think about it endlessly really it's just it's filled with fabulous material but when you get right down to it what it's saying is that in the silence of our inner space is the key to our freedom And so all the words, all the teachings, all the books, all the texts are important only insofar as they lead us to this awareness, this capacity that we have to be fully alert, fully clear, fully at peace and happy and free. So understanding samadhi is really central to what's going on. And that's the title of Richard's book. Do you remember the exact, the complete title? It is... Titled Samadhi. Samadhi. Drumroll, please. <laughs> the Experience of Samadhi, an In-Depth Investigation of Buddhist Meditation. Yeah, there we are. Thanks. So the key word there, I think, is experience. To help us experience what samadhi is and what it can be. What a spacious awareness, what a mind at peace can be in fueling our energy, our clarity, our lives. (laughs) So... So that is a little bit about the concentration that Mick talked about last week. And tonight we're talking about the faculty of wisdom, which when you look at it more carefully and clearly and you look at the etymology of the word in Pali, the ancient language of the canon, the Theravadan canon, the scriptures, that have come come down to us and that are central to our practice. The word is panya. Panya wisdom is made up of two pieces. One is discernment and the other is discrimination. So wisdom comes to us as we are able to discern. Discern refers to that process or that capability or faculty that we have of cutting what we want to pay attention to and what we want to leave behind or not waste our mental and emotional and spiritual effort on. So discernment is a key to the process. How do we cut through all that is clear and present and happening so that we move in the direction of freedom, that we move in the direction 
that frees us and others. So discernment is part of the wisdom faculty. And the other is discrimination. Discrimination is uh, a loaded faculty. It's, in a sense, it's like dynamite, I think. I I tend to think of it like an explosive because it is that faculty which names and assigns identity. You discern, you label, you determine what something is. So as we're sitting, something comes into our minds. The labeling approach would be to notice. Is it a thought? Is it a feeling? Is it a sensation? At more subtle levels, is it something that we want to pay attention to or not? So discrimination is that faculty which, in a sense, judges. It takes the dross the, the leftovers, the not to be paid attention to, away from that which we want to pay attention to. So with discernment, we cut, we separate, and with discrimination, we actually identify so that we know what it is that we want to pay attention to. So that's a little bit about the inner process of wisdom what's underneath this wisdom statement. Edna St. Vincent Millay, a famous female poet from the early 1900s, said, life is not one damn thing after another. It's one damn thing over and over. And it's... It's a little bit of a Buddhist insight there. It's one damn thing over and over. It doesn't have to be, but how often is that the case? We find ourselves stumbling over the same stones, the same impediments and obstacles. So where's the freedom? The freedom is not to repeat the mistakes of the past or the shortcomings of the past or to be there uh, as we were. The opportunity is to be fresh and new at all times. Wisdom is that faculty that gives us that freshness to be able to see clearly what's happening and to separate the good from the nut, and to label it, to know it. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, Life consists in what a man is noticing all day long. Simple statement, but I think it has a lot in it. It consists in what we notice all day long. What we don't notice slips right on by. What we notice 
is our life. What life do we choose? Do we take life simply as it comes, piece by piece? Or do we carefully discriminate and discern? There's a story that I'll share that is very compelling, I think, about wisdom. There was a sea captain in the 1840s named Charles Scammon, who was wanting to make a success of himself. And he happened to discover a lagoon in Baja, California, where the gray whales would come and have their babies. So for millennia, the gray whales had been feeding in the feeding grounds in the Alaskan Gulf and then coming down in the wintertime and having their babies in December, January, and February in Scammon's Lagoon in Baja, California. And Scammon, being a 19th century person with uh, not a lot of discrimination or discernment, harvested these whales and harvested them in huge numbers and actually became very wealthy. And because of his harvesting, other people heard about the Scammon's Lagoon whales. They were, in a sense, sitting ducks or completely vulnerable because they were there to have their babies. And so over about 40 years, the gray whale population plummeted. And in the 1870s, Scammon suddenly woke up to what was going on. And he said, what have I done? I've started a process which has decimated this gray whale population. And so he spent the rest of his life promoting uh, an ecological consciousness, promoting conservation of the gray whales. And it was through his actions that some protective legal measures were taken to protect the gray whales in Scammon's Lagoon. And also there was several other lagoons in Baja California that because of his efforts, the gray whale population did not go to zero although it was very low for many, many years. And eventually, in the 1950s and early 60s, complete elimination of hunting of gray whales happened. And the gray whale population now has bounced back, and there are are thousands of gray whales, and the population is now healthy once again. But I think the story is very illustrative of wisdom. Scammon was a a sea captain, and he was charged with making money for the company that owned the ship that he sailed. And so he made some decisions that he later regretted deeply and then acted to counteract. So I think that this is the opportunity that we have in Vipassana mindfulness practice 
to develop our wisdom so that at the end of our lives or at a later stage, we don't suddenly wake up with horror and realize that we've perpetrated something that is horrific, terrible, and that we have to spend the rest of our lives unwinding. So wisdom is that powerful tool, that faculty of mind, that capability that allows us to make clear decisions, to see what's happening, to know ourselves, to know deeply who we are and what our values are, and to make decisions based on what's best, to make decisions on what promotes our freedom and others' freedom, our happiness and others' happiness. So I'd like to read you a little bit from the scriptures. When I refer to the scriptures, I'm referring to what's called the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is a body of work that has come to us down from more than 2,500 years, actually. It's a body of work that was passed along verbally in a verbal tradition for hundreds of years. And then finally, in about 200 BC, was put down in writing, at first on palm leaves. And then eventually, the writing, uh, the palm leaves, as they decayed, the writing would be continued. And through monastic dedication in Sri Lanka, the writings were continued for several thousand years. Some scholars say that the oldest document that we have from the Pali Canon really dates from the 1700s. And so up until then, the wisdom that we call the Pali Canon was transferred from person to person, from palm leaf to palm leaf, from writing to writing. And finally, in the 17 and 1800s, we have some written documents that were then translated. And the translation is called the Pali Canon, the Suttas. In there are all sorts of teachings. And generally, they're in a form that was easily to verbally transmit. So there's lots of repetition. There's kind of a poetic rhythm. Uh, it was such that people could re easily remember these things. One of the nice teachings that I think that applies to wisdom is the simile of the elephant. And it's a story. The story starts with a king who wants to, um, in a sense, do some teaching in his community. And so he calls out to the community and asks that all the blind people in the community be gathered together. And he has an elephant shown to the blind people in a special way. So I'll just read a little bit of this. This is the simile of the elephant. 
says, now tell me, blind people, what the elephant is like. The blind people who had been shown the head of the elephant replied, the elephant, your majesty, is just like a water jar. Those who had been shown the ear of the elephant replied, the elephant, your majesty, is just like a winnowing basket. Those who had been shown the tusk of the elephant replied, the elephant, your majesty, is just like an iron rod. Those who had been shown the trunk of the elephant replied, the elephant, your majesty, is just like the pole of a plow. Those who had been shown the body of the elephant replied, the elephant, your majesty, is just like a granary. Those who had been shown the foot of the elephant replied, The elephant, your majesty, is just like a post. Those who had been shown the hindquarters of the elephant replied, The elephant, your majesty, is just like a mortar. And those who had been shown the tail of the elephant replied, The elephant, your majesty, is just like a pestle. Those who had been shown the tuft at the end of the tail of the elephant replied, Oh, the elephant, your majesty, is just like a broom. Saying, the elephant is like this, is not like that. The elephant's not like that, it's like this. They stuck one another, they struck one another with their fists. So these blind people got into a big conflict because they had seen part of the elephant and thought they understood what an elephant was. So this finishes off by saying, in the same way, monks, this is a teaching from the Buddha, in the same way, monks, the wanderers of other sects, sects are blind and eyeless. They don't know what is beneficial and what is harmful. They don't know what is the Dhamma and what is not the Dhamma. Not knowing what is beneficial and what is harmful. Not knowing what is the Dhamma and what is not the Dhamma. They live arguing, quarreling and disputing, wounding one another with weapons of the mouth, saying, the Dhamma is like this, it is not like that. The Dhamma is not like this, it is like this. Just so, monks, the wanderers of other sects are blind and are not applying wisdom. So I like it. I think it's a, a nice image. You can imagine these blind people getting into conflict because they think they know exactly what this elephant is, and yet they've just seen part. So this is, again, about wisdom. Wisdom is big. It brings us the opportunity to see beyond the immediate, to see beyond just what we touch, what our lives are in contact with. In the Theravadan tradition, the way of the elders, which is what has come down to us for at least 2,500 years, there's a pairing of faculties. Wisdom is often paired with compassion. And it is said that wisdom by itself is dry and judgmental. It can become confining. 
but wisdom with compassion becomes alive and vital. Compassion by itself may be soft and wandering and unclear, but compassion with wisdom is strong and effective and powerful. So our tradition has that not only discernment and discrimination underlie wisdom, but that wisdom must be paired with compassion. That our human nature is such that wisdom by itself may not best serve us. As Mark Twain said, it's not what we don't know that hurts us. It's what we know and just ain't so. We think we know it. So pairing wisdom and compassion is an opportunity for us. It gives us the ability to navigate the turbulent waters. Maureen mentioned a little bit about my background. I do work with an organization called CARA, based in Palo Alto. It's an organization that serves people who have had a tragedy or a loss in their lives. And the service is three things. It's either one-to-one counseling, peer support groups, or community outreach, where we go into schools and organizations and provide crisis response After a tragedy, we provide training programs to help people understand how to handle crisis and tragedy. So CARA is a wonderful agency. It served me. I first was involved with it when my dad, in 1987, died by suicide. And that was a horrendous earthquake experience. Everything felt like it had fallen away. I thought (laughs) that I not only didn't have any wisdom about life and him and what was happening, but I probably never would. I really felt like I was lost. And thank goodness there was Kara. I got paired with somebody who had also lost a parent by suicide. And it gave me the opportunity to sort of normalize the experience to navigate through, to to have uh, that first faculty of of uh, commitment, the second of effort, endurance. So I got through that experience <clears throat> and have since become a volunteer. I, was, I volunteered for many years as a CARA facilitator and uh, recently I've been on the staff and I do community outreach. One of my colleagues who also does community outreach is a woman who also came to CARA, as I did, with a tragedy in her life. She had lost her granddaughter. You may remember about five years ago, there was a very tragic case where a little girl was riding her bike on the way to work near Gunn High School in Palo Alto and was hit by a car, and the car didn't stop. And it turned out that the person that was driving the car thought that she had hit a bump or something like that. I guess it was kind of early in the morning, but 
the end result was that the little girl died. And so her grandmother now works with Clara and is a volunteer. And I was talking to her one time about how did she get through this tragic experience of suddenly losing her granddaughter to such a, a horrific experience, uh, a horrific uh, situation. And she said, after reflection, that it was when her mind no longer was struggling to make sense of it. She said, you know, for months and several years, my mind wouldn't let it go. I kept trying to make sense of it. How could this be? Who did what? At what time? What signs or what laws or what changes could have been made? And she said, I went around and around and around about it, and I finally realized that rationally, in my mind, I could not make sense of it. And I let it go. She said, at that point, I began to have peace. And I think that that's a good story. I think it illustrates how wisdom can come to us. Wisdom is not the faculty that comes to us by practicing, like we practice the piano or we practice for the SAT or the MCAT or whatever it is that we're practicing for. It's not the faculty <clears throat> that we build in a conscious, sequential way where we do scales and develop it and so on. It's almost as though teachers say it's present always. Wisdom is that faculty which never leaves us, but we must pay attention so that it has an opportunity to take effect, to be present for us. Gandhi said, the great way is to live in such a way that our thoughts, our actions, our feelings, and our values all are in harmony. So to live in such a way that all in our awareness is in harmony. So when we achieve that harmony, we have the most open, the most accepting, the most compassionate, fertile ground for dealing with what comes to us. There's a wonderful Indian sage uh, who died 20 years or so ago. Sri Nisa Gardata Maharaja. He is uh, cited often. You'll hear um, teachers like Jack Cornfield refer to him frequently. <laughs> he was, as they say, a petty store clerk. He had a, a little shop, very small shop, uh, in India, and he sold whatever he could and kind of kept he and his family afloat that way. But he was a man who had the spaciousness of consciousness that wisdom was present a lot. And so people around him appreciated that and the stories of him spread. 
And it turned out before he died that people from all over the world would come and they would just sit with him in his little shop and ask questions. And one of the great books that I've ever read are a compilation of some of these questions that his so-called students put together. In there, there's a saying about wisdom that I just absolutely love, and I'll read it for you. He said, when I see I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I see I am everything, that is love. My life is a movement between these two. When I see I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I see I am everything, that is love. My life is a movement between these two. So compassion and wisdom, love and wisdom. Wisdom, the fifth of the faculties, is unempowered, is unvalued, unvaluable without love and compassion. So the teachings then about wisdom are that we have it, that it is present for us. It is not something we have to acquire. We don't have to read books for it. We can be a Nisargardatta, be an uneducated person, living a very simple lifestyle, and yet have wisdom, have really clear understanding of what truly life is. So that's the good news about wisdom, I think. It's not hard to have. It's not expensive. We don't have to go somewhere and do something and achieve something in order to have it. But on the other hand, we must practice. With practice, it is refined in us. So I'd like to finish what I have to say about wisdom by having us do a little bit of a sitting. And then at the end of the sitting, I'm going to read some words from the Dhammapada. Our guiding teacher, Gil Fransdahl, has translated the Dhammapada, a poetic compilation that's part of the Pali Canon. Very beautiful, short teachings. And these teachings will tell us some things about wisdom. So let's just get into our meditative posture. We'll sit a little bit and then I will read a little bit from the Dhammapada, ring the bell, and then, as is our tradition, it'll be an opportunity for us to do some sharing. Like someone pointing to treasure is the wise person who sees faults and points them out. Associate with such a wise person. Good will come of that. Not bad. If you associate with one such as this, 
who applies wisdom and compassion in noticing what can be changed. Irrigators guide water. Fletchers shape arrows. Carpenters fashion wood. Sages tame themselves. As a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the teachings. One is not wise only because one speaks a lot. One who is peaceful without hate and fearless is said to be wise. Wisdom arises from spiritual practice. Without practice, it decays. Knowing these paths to gain and loss Conduct yourself so that wisdom grows. There is no meditative absorption without wisdom. There is no wisdom without meditative absorption. With both, one is close to pure freedom and happiness. And what is the wisdom of one who is in training all their lives? There is the wisdom where a monk or a person discerns life actually as it is. This is stress or suffering. This is the origination of stress or suffering. This is the cessation of stress or suffering. And this is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress or suffering. These monks are the treasures of the five faculties. Well, thank you for your attention to that talk. Appreciate it very much. This is, in our tradition, an opportunity where we can do a little exchange from yogi to yogi, an opportunity for us to learn a little bit about each other and our own practices. And it's so helpful to both speak and listen. So no compulsion to speak, but if you'd like to speak, that would be a wonderful opportunity for us all. And I'd like to begin with applied wisdom, the thought that wisdom must come into our lives and be applied. It must happen. There must be something tangible that is showing wisdom. 
So what is it in our lives? Where do we notice wisdom happening? Maybe it's something that we're doing. Maybe it's something that friends or colleagues have told us about or something they're doing. Let's just take a few moments and share a little bit about where we see wisdom in our lives. So who has something that they'd share about where they see wisdom happening in life? If no one else has something to share, I'll share something. <clears throat> I'll share one of my favorite stories about wisdom happening in life. This is a story about my grandmother. And later in her life, after her husband had died, my grandfather, she decided to take a trip. And so she signed up for this cruise to Hawaii, big Dream. She had lived her life pretty much within the confines of Denver, Colorado, and hadn't done much traveling. And so she went to this exotic location. And one day was waiting at a bus stop. And the bus pulled up, <clears throat> doors opened. And coming down the stairs was a man who was kind of reeling and rolling not moving in a controlled way. And she said when she first caught sight of this, in her mind, something said, oh no, a drunk. Ah. And so her kind of her first impulse was to shun him and judge him and hold him at a distance, reject him. But something snapped in her mind and, and said, no, that's not the way I want to treat this person. Whatever the cause, I want to treat him with compassion and kindness. So she opened her arms, caught him as he sort of fell out the bus door and helped him kind of get settled and get on his feet and get straight again. And at that point, she realized that he had a physical disability, that it wasn't from drinking, that it was something that he was physically impaired by, and that getting down those stairs was a huge, huge effort and had put him at risk, and she had helped him by being there and sort of catching him at the bottom. And so that, to me, is wisdom in action. That is having a spacious mind, a presence, so that you can notice what's happening not only the physical experience of somebody coming at you, but the inner experience of your judging mind to notice all of that, to accept it, and then to make a decision 
as to how you'll respond. And the decision, in this case, was a wonderful decision. A decision that supported this man, that contributed to the happiness of the world. And it just stands out for me as operative wisdom. Wisdom that happens in the world, that can deal with things that come at us in the world. We can't always operate in such a beautiful textbook way so that it has a lovely conclusion. But wisdom is that faculty that helps us discern and discriminate to separate that which is useful from not useful and to know and to choose based on our knowing. So as we apply wisdom, we have the opportunity to be completely free not just moving from pillar to post, from stimulus to response, from anxiety to anxious response, fear to fear response, but to make a clear decision that supports our freedom and other people's freedom. So that's my story about wisdom in the world. Anybody else have a story? Yeah, thanks. And share your name if you would, and Maureen's going to pass over a microphone. My name is Hernan, and my story of wisdom um, uh, began uh, this morning, where I was getting my children, uh, daughter that's nine, and my son, who is uh, seven, uh, uh, getting them ready to go to school, and my daughter had homework to do, seven in the morning. She asked me to put a English muffin and toaster so that she can eat it. My son comes by and says, no, you know, he wants to do it. So he put the English muffin in the toaster, and when it was ready, he came back and says, well, I want it now. But since my daughter was doing homework, it was her English muffin, I said, you need that. we have to give it to your sister. We'll make you another one. He insisted, no, this is mine. I put it in the toaster. Well, she was waiting for the for the uh, English puppet that she had requested. So I found myself in a dilemma. So I said, your, do- your sister's doing her homework. She has to, and it's hers. And, you know, I didn't explain it to you, but you were putting it in there for your sister. And he didn't buy that. So in anger, he took the English muffin and just didn't want her to have it. He crumpled it and ran to his room crying in bed. So I let him cry and cry and cry. Uh, Fifteen minutes later, I came in there. I said, time to go get dressed for school. He said, I'm not going to school. And he was determined, strong determination. Time was ticking away. And uh, I said, well, you have to go to school. So I thought, let's see, what could I How could I coerce him? Okay, I'm going to take away his DS, his Nintendo. He goes, I don't care. You can have it all I care. I'm not going to school. I said, well, well, I want to get your clothes. And I was thinking, grab you and dress you in the car. You're going to school. I'm not going to school. 
And then I threatened to send them to the principal's office and have them explain the importance of going to school. I'm not going to school, and you're not going to do that. So I said, I just let them, you know, be angry, and time is ticking. And he says, well, I don't want to go to the swim competition this weekend. He has to go. Dilemma increases. He doesn't want to go not to competition. He has to go. Uh, so finally he said, I'm going to get dressed. And so I said, that's a good decision. So he finally got dressed. As he was getting dressed, I, I said, do you want an English muffin? He says, yes, I do. And so I prepared an English muffin as he got dressed, got his things, and he went to school. There was no threat. There was no trauma. There was no abuse. He did it on his own. And I was very proud of him and myself. It's a good story. <laughs> Kids are wonderful, aren't they? they? They just bring us the greatest challenges, many opportunities to apply wisdom. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, you could have gotten real puffy and real strong, and you know, you could have jumped on it. And but yeah, it sounds like the kind of the softer approach was what really made the day. Yeah, great. Well, as they say, the, you've uh, experienced the Dharma talk, and it's now time for us to close. So let me ask us once again to just sit a little bit in silence. We'll have a traditional sharing of the merit. I'll ring the bell, and then we'll be on our way. So as is our tradition, when we practice together, when we talk about practice together, when we talk about the Dharma, the teachings, it's beneficial to all if we notice that there is value here and that we share this value and that we, in fact, dedicate any value or positive result of our work and our practice and our sharing this evening to the benefit of all people everywhere. May all beings everywhere be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings everywhere be happy just as they are. May all beings everywhere be healthy and strong. May all beings everywhere be at ease in their lives. May all beings everywhere have freedom and experience the wisdom that allows them to make clear, happy choices. May all beings everywhere be free and at ease and experiencing the happiness of vital living. Thank you for so much. Thank you so much for being part of this this evening. 
It's been a great pleasure for me to share this evening with you. I encourage you to drive wisely as you go home. And keep coming back. Yes. Oh, Kara is spelled K-A-R-A. And I do have some business cards if you're curious about it. It's a wonderful, uh, oops, it's a wonderful organization that has no charge for all of its urgent care services so that people, when they're having a difficulty, get support without having to worry about financial cost. So, best wishes, everybody. Enjoy the rain.